Today we are joined by David Krull, he's the Associate Director at GSK and GSK Fellow, leading the Cellular Biomarkers team. During this episode, we will talk about his past and present positions in the histotechnology arena. Um, he will share his passion for coaching and mentoring, and we will then exchange a little bit more about how pharmaceutical companies are embracing now tissue profiling more and more. And he will share his visions on applying spatial omics for biomarker research and discovery. So thank you, David. He is a GSK employee, but his responses are his own, so not necessarily representing the position of his employer. Hello, welcome. This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. As the pioneer in the field of spatial biology, Nanostring enables scientists to see the multiomic expression of genes and proteins in the natural context of tissue structure. In this podcast series, we present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share initiatives to engage and support them. Thank you for listening. Can you please give us an introduction to yourself and maybe walk us through what you have done in the past and then what you are doing today? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Irene. This is indeed a pleasure for me to be part of this podcast, and I really am humbled by the invitation to participate. And you didn't realize this, but I'm actually a professional podcaster. You will be judging me. <laughs> no, I am just kidding. I am a professional employee who has done some podcasting actually through the NSH. I've done about three podcasts and I really enjoy them because it allows people to share their stories, right? Because there's so much power as we share our story. And I listen to quite a few podcasts on Spotify too during my commute in or when I'm at the gym. And I think it's a great way to keep ourselves informed on the, on the latest technology and also for leadership development or just kind of self-improvement. And, and there's some fun ones too. I don't all listen to all serious stuff. I listen to some fun podcasts too. And I apologize right off that I did not know that Nanostring had a podcast. How could I have missed this? <laughs> We've been working together, Nanostring and I, for several years, and I did not know that there was a podcast. So now I have to go back to the beginning and listen to all the episodes. And I really should have done some more homework, too, because I could be way off in this podcast. Because Actually, I haven't had a chance to listen to any of the previous episodes. But I promise you this, that I will go back and I will listen from the beginning, because I'm sure there's a lot of valuable information in there. There is one that I will recommend to you because it's on IBD. Uh, so I think IBD is very close to your heart. We will hear more about that. And we interviewed a researcher from Spain who's also passionate about IBD. So I'll share that with you. First of all, I just want to start out by saying, how did I get involved in histology? If I look back on, on my career and how I ended up where I am now, I've been doing a lot of reflection lately. Actually, it was my 55th birthday last month. And actually my daughter, Amy, who we're going to talk about, we actually share the same birthday. So we're both born on August 22nd, which is kind of cool. My wife was a little bit disappointed. She's like, oh, I really wanted Amy to have her own birthday. And I said, what? <laughs> she still has her own birthday. You know, we just get to share it together. I thought that was kind of cool. So we'll go into Amy's story a little bit too, because there's a personal connection there that I want to share. But if I go back to histology, it actually all started back when I was in high school. And when I was in uh, a, a senior in my high school, I actually took an anatomy physiology class. And during the class, we were looking at microscope slides that were stained with hematoxyl and neosin. And they're all different tissues. There was muscle, there was connective tissue, heart, brain. And I was like, wow, this is very cool. You can see so many different 
things at that microscopic level. And I began to understand that, oh, there, there are cells and different structural elements that kind of hold everything together. And I was just fascinated by that. And then there was a career day about six months into my senior year. And it was for allied health fields. So like medical technology, hematology, cytology, and histology. So they happened to be there as well. And my eyes like lit up like, wow, you're the people, uh, the scientists that actually put these tissues on these slides. That's very cool. And because I didn't have a good track record or a, a good uh, vision for my college career at that point, I decided I would explore that opportunity. So I ended up enrolling in the program, had to go to community college for one year first to get some prerequisites out of the way. But then I enrolled in the program at Hartford Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut. And it was called the School of Allied Health. And I ended up living on campus uh, at the nursing dormitory. So there was nurses and med techs and things that lived on the site too. And so I, I was there and half of my day was all in the laboratory at the Hartford Hospital. And in the afternoon, I would do a lot of work in, in theory with the professors and, and learn some of the chemistry behind what, what we do. And then I became a certified histologist. And that was way back in 1988. <laughs> so that was back in 88. And my first job was at the Providence Woman and Infants Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. So I actually started my, my career at a, at a hospital. I worked there for only three months because I had also applied at Pfizer in Grand Connecticut, uh, another rather large pharma company. I'm sure you've heard of them. And... The reason I got interested in working with them is because they had a preclinical toxicology program doing safety assessment. So I actually started my career in, in different animal models, so rats and mice, monkeys, and I would do traditional histology preparations, so tissue samples, hematoxylaniacin, and then I would report the data to the pathologist who would make the final read. And through that time, I was really mentored and coached by some really good managers and also pathologists. Throughout my career, pathologists have been involved, veterinary pathologists as well as medical pathologists or human or clinical pathologists, whatever you would like to call them, working with patients. So I've always had pathologists involved, and that's where I really learned more of the science around disease and, and understanding what features are important to look at when, when looking at uh, tissue samples. So I'm just going to pause there and, you know, anything, uh, any questions that you have at this point, Irene, that um, you want to? Yeah, well, because you touched upon the fact that they were sort of mentors for you. So is that something that you value today as in they were really essential for your career development or at the time already they were the ones who were sort of reaching out for you or even giving you valuable advice on not only the job, but also how your career could develop? I mean, is there a reason you're mentioning that they were good coaches? At this point in my career, I'm really passionate about the topic of mentoring and coaching because it's important to pass on knowledge that you've attained over the years onto the next generation and inspire them to do great work and to step into the leadership role that they need to have. And I didn't realize it at the time, 
that they were those people to me. But looking back now, I see the fingerprint that they've left on my life and the impact. And I'm just very grateful for that. And I want to have the opportunity to do that for other people. And that's one of the reasons why I like to share my story in this way, you know, through the podcast or through teaching. I, I really enjoy uh, teaching. And so these are ways that I can potentially give back and help inspire the next generation. Yeah, I think that's very valuable. And that's one of the reasons why we do a podcast. We all are aware of how important networking is. And it's important from an early age, I would say early in terms of the career ways. But how do you find a good mentor? If you put yourself today in the shoes of somebody who's just starting their career, what are the things they should look for if they want to identify a good coach or mentor? And what are the things that they should move away from, I guess, if they are not getting that because it's true that you have to find the job that you like, but you also um, have to be able to leave from a job you don't like, if you get what I mean. Like that are, I think that are the pros and the cons. Yeah, there's certainly a lot to unpack there in, in mm -hmm. that question. There's a, there's a lot of different directions that we could go there. But when I look for somebody that I would desire to have like a mentoring relationship for me as somebody that desires a mentor. I look for a specific skill set that they have that I want to also have. I was not a very good speaker early in my career. I really struggled with that. And so I'd like to go find, I like to find people that were very good at speaking, at public speaking. And then I would have discussions with them and how can I improve my public speaking? How can I uh, be more confident when I get up in front of people and, and share? And over time, they fed into me different suggestions and, and things that I could do to help my public speaking. And then eventually I became more proficient at it by doing. So in finding a mentor, it, it needs to be somebody that you're willing to take their advice and act on it. I've been with mentees who I personally did some coaching with, and I would give them suggestions of what they need to do next, what their next steps should be. But if they don't follow through and take that action themselves, then they won't benefit from the coaching that I'm providing. And I love the analogy of a professional football team. You know, you have the coach right in the midst of the game. They're like on the sidelines, but they're interacting with the team. They're watching everything that's going on in that game. And at the right time, they kind of interject to offer suggestions, advice on, on which way to go. If the team doesn't take that advice, then what is the value of the coach, right? And so in looking for that right person to work with, you need to be willing to trust them and, and take the advice that they're, they're sharing and be willing to step into that direction. Now, if you have somebody that you're working with and it's not a very good relationship, maybe you don't feel the care from that person that you desire, then it's fine to walk away to say that, you know what, this probably isn't the best relationship for my development, so I need to go find someone else. And it's good to realize that because you don't want to be in a, in a relationship that is not providing any value. Does the mentor or coach have to be your direct manager? I mean, you just pointed out to the fact that you identified a skill that could be considered as a soft skill, like that's not something that you can get like a degree, but you can identify other people in the company, whether they are leaders or peers that are good at something that you're not. And is that something that you would recommend people to reach out to? It could also be something technical that it doesn't even have to be only soft skills. Exactly. Um, and I'll share this analogy with you. Within the histology community, there are 
immunohistochemistry assays and there are in situ hybridization assays. And IHC is for proteins, in situ hybridization is to detect uh, RNA. RNA. Yeah. And if you have been doing IHC for most of your career, you might need to have a mentor come in and help you learn to do in situ hybridization if you don't already possess those skills. And the similarity is there between the two assays, but there are subtle differences that you might not pick up if you were to do it on your own. So it's important to identify skill sets that you need to be successful in a particular area that you might not have, but somebody else may have. And they could be in within your own laboratory, or maybe they would be at the NSH, right? The National Society for Technology, where you could attend a workshop and it's only focused on, on that insightful hybridization technology. And that's how I've learned a lot of uh, my new skills. And I've also identified those coaches and mentors to help me out. And that's why I want to be going forward in the space of spatial technologies. Yeah, that makes a great transition to my next question, which is, you started to say that you had a love for histology, tissues, microscopes, and then your career took you to the technology side of things. And can you tell us a little bit more about what you do today and how you are combining uh, these two? Certainly. So I ended up leaving Pfizer back in 2004, and I took a position at GSK. And prior to that, I, I think it would be useful to mention that I did complete my undergraduate degree while I was at Pfizer. I went to Connecticut College and got my bachelor's degree in zoology while I was full-time with Pfizer. It took six years, but it was certainly worth it. And I was able to do a lot of independent research while I was at the college as well because I was already active in, in, in the scientific field. And so I was able to connect a lot of what I was doing at Pfizer to my undergraduate research. And a lot of my, my honors thesis actually in my senior year at, at the college was on cyclin-dependent kinases. So looking at CDK4, CDK6, hmm. yep, and, and trying to look for non-redundant roles between those two cyclins. So that was exciting. That was my first focus on pathways and cancer. And I kind of moved forward now into my career at, at GSK. But as I said, I, I moved to GSK in 2004, and I joined the investigative pathology group there. And that's where I began to do more of a human focus. So some clinical trial samples or human samples that I was using for target uh, validation for some of the, um, the medicines that we were working on. And I've always been a very curious person throughout my entire career. And I was always looking for the, the next big thing, especially in the field of histotechnology. And it's through the, the NSH and involvement with a lot of the vendors and other researchers that it would discover what the emerging technology is. And I actually did a, a separate podcast on disruptive technology and anything that comes in that really changes the way that you work. And I, I refer to automation quite a bit. When I was doing IHC back in the early 90s, everything was manual. Right. And some labs continued to do it very manually, right? And, and that's fine. But since I started using automation, it has freed me up so much. And I can be so much more productive and efficient with the use of automation. So within the last 20 years, I've, I've been doing everything I can to full fully automate all of my manual practices. That's very cool. I mean, you are still quite, I mean, hands-on, but then the machine is your hands, basically, if that makes sense. But, and then you can, 
use that time to do something where you need more brain power and the machine cannot do it for you. So yeah, yeah, I mean, that's also a little bit the philosophy in nanostring to try to automate as much as we can to free the researcher from these manual, let's say, tasks. There, I think there's some fear in that too. Like I talked to some folks and, you know, some researchers and they're like, oh, you know, they're trying to automate everything. They're trying to force us out of a job. And I said, no, that's that's not not at all the case. Really where, where expertise comes in is designing the experiments very carefully and doing the research ahead of time to get the most value out of the work that we're producing. You know, I, I get so excited when I see the final product. I don't get excited about applying an antibody and waiting an hour for me to do a wash and, you know, being tied to a timer. I'm excited about how did my ideas, my vision translate into some kind of meaningful value added product at the end. That's what I get excited about. Right. Exactly. Uh, it's that endpoint. And I think it's definitely important to understand the theory behind what we're doing and not just be an automaton, right? Just pushing buttons all day. But it's really freeing for me because while the instrument's doing some staining run, for instance, I can work on the image analysis algorithm or I can start to mine some of the data that I produced earlier in the week and try to understand what targets are being expressed and pathways are being activated. And that's where I get, you know, really excited. Right. And that's the added value of what happens before the experiment, but also after. So and I think that that's where you can spend quite a lot of time discussing with colleagues and getting inspired for the next experiment rather than spending all the time in the lab, like you said, just waiting for antibodies to get fixed. So... If it's okay for you, we can move on to the next question. It, it brings us down to something really more specific, which is that GSK is part of a consortium that was set up by Nanostring and other pharmaceutical companies with the idea to develop the best practices. So that's also something else that comes down to how efficient you can be in the lab and the idea of not wasting time on things that don't work, but rather develop tools that other people can use as this is what we consider the best practices, in particular for large cohort studies. But I think it can apply also to smaller cohorts, as long as you, like you said, ask the right questions and then set up the experiment in a way that is meaningful to get answers to those questions. So why do you think that it's important to do this kind of work in the context of consortia? What is the your experience working with other companies or CROs? Can you share a bit of that? Absolutely. And so when I define myself what my leadership qualities are is that I want to be a person who builds relationships and it's really feeds into those. And I want to drive innovation and new technology. And I also want to make wise choices. And as I do that, how do I live out those values? Well, I want to connect with other people and hear their views and their ideas because they may have a piece of the puzzle that I'm trying to put together that I don't have. And it's only through that connection that I may discover something that um, I have a gap. And they call it a gap because it exists, but you don't realize that you have it, right? So they could, there could be a, a gap or a blind spot. That's another way of looking at it that they might see. And what I think I can bring to a consortium, and I have brought to the consortium that had worked on the best practices, is the histology side. Not many individuals get to work on technology like the Nanostring, GMX DSP, who have an extensive histology background. 
So I spend a lot of my career focused on those pre-analytical variables, how you harvest a sample, how long it is, remains outside of the, the organism, the animal or the human before it's actually fixed, how thick do you need to actually slice that tissue sample to get the most adequate and thorough fixation, and how do you then process that sample to a final product, you know, in a paraffin block and then prepare the sections. And how long are those sections good for once they're prepared before they actually get applied to an assay? And all of that uh, is very important because you're investing a lot of time and money into the analysis of that, that single tissue section. And so it's imperative that you do everything that you can to make sure that you're giving the best product that you can to that platform. Uh, so that's why the quality of the sectioning is important and, and making sure that you have done some orthogonal approaches to make sure that that tissue sample is as good as it can be. And how do we do that? Well, it's by doing an H&E first of the tissue sample, sitting down with your pathologist, and then reviewing the tissue quality. Like, how do the nuclei look? Do we see any artifacts that are there that shouldn't be there? If we do an IHC, like a CD45 or a pancytokeratin, does the quality of the staining match the expected biology for that sample? Do we have confidence that everything looks good there? And then maybe take it to another step and do some insight hybridization just to uh, look at one housekeeper gene, for instance, or two. PPIB is often used for insight dehybridization. You can look at the quality of the RNA preservation across the sample. And if you see areas where there's really good RNA expression and other areas that are totally negative but should be positive, then that gives you a clue that that sample may not be suitable for the next step. And it is a little bit more work ahead of time, but you have that reassurance knowing that you did it right the first time and you made all those checks and you made sure that as best as you can tell, everything is, is suitable for the next step in the assay. Extensive QC, and then you get to all the setup with perhaps samples that are not as precious as the ones that you will then need to use for the proper experiment, which, yeah, that's also another point, like the, the quality of the data you get out depends a lot on what you put in. And then those tissue samples are very valuable. They come from clinical trials, for instance, and there is also biobank samples that probably have 20, 30 years old. And then you have a lot of information that you can then get out of those. So we work extensively with commercial partners, biobanks, like you mentioned, and that's where the QC first happens. It's where you screen through those tissue blocks that you're looking for, and you decide ahead of time, what percent tumor do I need to have in my tissue sample? You know, do I want 20%, 50%, 75%, how much is sufficient for the work that I'm doing? How much necrosis am I going to allow to be present? Zero, 10%, 15%, that's all very important. How large is the sample? Am I going to have enough tissue to really put down enough regions of interest and collect the information that I need to? And does the description of the disease, the pathology diagnosis, does that match what we're looking to study? And maybe even in the grade of the sample, you know, the, is it a grade four tumor or is it a grade two? Is it benign? Is it malignant? All that information is super important actually at the time of, of procuring those samples. And this really just sets you up so you can have an assay method development that ensures your, your assay is working well before you then go on to those precious clinical trial samples where you have a limited sample. It can be like a fine needle aspirate or a needle biopsy, and you have to make good decisions on those samples. And it's all based on that pre-analytical work that you've done. 
Exactly. In the podcast, we will also share the resources that have been generated out of the work of this best practices. Yeah, yeah. So people can download and learn from there. Can you quickly perhaps summarize some of the key findings that you think are the take home messages from that work? Always begin with a robust study design. So it's important to, to have a hypothesis and to generate a strong hypothesis with a spatial question. So if, if you don't have that, then it doesn't make sense for proceeding to the next step after that. What, what are you expecting to see or what do you anticipate getting from the data that you're generating? So I would begin with that and an understanding how many samples you need to really look at in order to get a strong enough study. So if you're just looking at three samples, is that really going to provide the robustness to the data? Or do you have to look at 15 or 20 samples to really feel confident? So really determine what your, your sample size is going to be. So work together with a statistician, maybe like you mentioned the pathologist at some point, but now maybe the statistics comes into play. Yes, I would agree that you need to have a dynamic team, again, because we don't all possess, I'm not a statistician, <laughs> right? So that's another strength of mine. So I need to lean into somebody that is an expert in that area, and they can guide me. My data analysis isn't as, as strong as somebody who is a bioinformatics specialist, right? So you need to have somebody there to discuss what you want the data to look like at the end or what type of analysis you want done to the data at the end. And so it's important to have them at the table. And then, of course, the pathologist is a critical part of the team, understanding the, the regions to capture within the study and making sure that you have that, that spatial question in mind. I like when I describe the technology, I like to use the analogy of a roadmap. And if you think of back before there were GPSs <laughs> and Google Maps, we actually had the atlases, right? The actual paper maps. And you could find out a lot by looking at that because there's a lot of spatial context there. There's the paved roads, the dirt roads, the highways, the toll roads, and then there's the exit signs, right? And so by looking at the, the spatial context, you can actually determine where to go and how to get from point A to point B by following that direction. If you take that map and put it through a paper shredder, you can dissect out the same information that was on that map, but you lose the spatial context. So you can still determine how many roads there were and what type of roads they were and, and how many exit signs they were and all that type of stuff, but it doesn't provide the spatial context, so it doesn't provide any real direction. And that's how I look at the DSP platform, for instance, because you get all that spatial information. And then if you compare that to RNA-seq, like a bulk RNA readout, you get a lot of information, but there's no spatial information. So you don't really know what's happening in that microtissue environment. And that's why I think the spatial technology is so important. It's location, location, location. That's one thing. And then from the conversation, I feel like it's networking and collaboration that comes as a key theme at the moment, like both at the level of the, let's say, career development, but also here for this type of work, whether you are working in, let's say, your own institute, your own lab, you still need to collaborate with other people. And then at the consortium level where you are working together with other people to put together this kind of recommendations and best practices so that others don't need to do the same work again, they can build from there. So now if we go to the particular work that you are doing uh, now at, at GSK and how you are using spatial approaches to then discover new biomarkers, what is the impact that that's having in the field, in the work that you do? I think we alluded to IBD, so that's inflammatory bowel disease. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, certainly. 
my team is Southern Biomarkers. That's what we do. It's me and about the six other members of the team who focus on the clinical histology. And we develop assays to apply to these clinical trials. And we take a very disease agnostic approach. So we support multiple therapeutic areas within the organization. We do oncology, but we also do inflammation, so inflammatory diseases, diseases of the skin. And we're not just focused on tumor biology exclusively, although that seems like it gets a lot of uh, focus. And that's important to, to kind of bring forward to at this point is you can use this for just about any type of a, a project that you have, that there's a need to do this type of work and there's a spatial question. So it's a very disease agnostic approach. You can use it for, you know, looking at COVID, antivirals, infectious diseases. You know, the platform is very amenable to that. And in our team, we developed the assays, as I mentioned, and then the intent is to run them on clinical trials or make them available for clinical trials. And at this point, we're still looking for the right opportunity in that space. We had a program that we were going to apply it to, but unfortunately it was, it was terminated. The asset didn't move forward. And so that was a missed opportunity. And I would like to look at responders versus non-responders in situations like that. But one of the challenges in a research environment, and particularly pharmaceuticals, is it's difficult to justify that because there's so many other projects that are going forward that we need to apply our time to. And so that's something that I'm, I'm hoping that the academic field or universities can start to focus on more of understanding those responders versus non-responder questions, really, and helping to understand more of a personalized medicine approach where we look at patients as individuals, because there's a reason why one patient responded and another one didn't, but we just don't know why at this point. We can't really, we have some some guesses, right, that we can do and try to explain, but we really don't know why. We don't have a, a scientific justification for why it, it happened. And I think that's important to understand. And I'm going to share a story at this point that kind of drives that home as well. So my daughter, Amy, who I mentioned previously, when she was nine years old, she was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. And she and I, at the time, I was actually doing some IBD research just starting in that area when I was at GSK in North Carolina. And I recognized the symptoms. She was having a lot of cramping and abdominal pain, really not feeling uh, very comfortable. And I recommended to my wife we should bring her to a pediatric gastroenterologist to get checked. And that's not something that you just come off the top of your head that you just bring your, your child to, to see a specialist like that. But I was recognizing her symptoms and felt that she should really get checked out. And so we had went to the Duke University Medical Center in Durham, and that's when she was, she was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis based on endoscopy and also the biopsies. And she was the, the type of patient that unfortunately didn't respond to any of the current therapies. And so within a year after her diagnosis, she ended up having a, a complete uh, colectomy. So they removed her colon from the rectum all the way up to the ileum. And it included her appendix. And she actually had a carcinoid tumor in appendix too that we didn't know about. And fortunately, it was benign. So they were able to just remove that when they removed her colon. And then she had something called a J-pouch surgery where they restore that reservoir where it can capture um, feces and act as a, a pseudocolon, if you will. So she didn't have to have a colostomy bag. 
She did have an ileostomy where she had to have that until the surgery healed up from the J-pouch surgery. But then after that, she was able to get it removed. And she had been doing very well for many years after that. She still had flare-ups and, and pouchitis that can often occur, and they have to go in and do some endoscopy work. But just last year in 2022, she started having additional symptoms where she was having back pain, hip pain, and not very feeling very comfortable um, sitting and and she would get tired a lot walking. So we brought her back to see the gastroenterologist. They did another endoscopy and they found out that she had some additional lesions in different parts of her intestine and that she also had inflammation around her joints and her spine as shown by an MRI. And she was then diagnosed with having Crohn's disease, which is another Mm -hmm. form of IBD. And she also has a condition called ankylosing spondylitis, which is similar to like a rheumatoid arthritis. And so it just, all these things are connected. So with like an autoimmune type of disorder, and then having the, the joint pain and the gut issues, she was put on Humira. And fortunately, that has really helped her back pain and her joint pain. And it's it seems like it's somewhat repressed the Crohn's, but it's still something that we need to pay close attention to going forward. And biologics are amazing, what we've done in that area. So biologics are, are actually antibodies directed against a particular target to block a pathway. So it's not a small molecule or a chemical compound. It's actually a, you know an antibody. Immunotherapy. It is, correct. Yeah. And it's against uh, TNF-alpha specifically. And, and she can give it to herself or her mom gives it to her with like an EpiPen. And that's about every every four to five weeks. But the concern is that as these patients progress, they tend to develop a tolerance to the biologics and they need to be put on a new therapy in order to keep the symptoms repressed. And maybe we'll find a genetic linkage so right now, there's an estimate that it's 160 genes associated with, with IBD that are somehow perturbed. And so maybe if we find the right one, we can create some kind of a gene therapy to help prevent these patients from getting it. Or if we can identify specific pathways that may be involved in the disease and take a proactive approach where we can identify them. And, like the causes, like from the beginning, before yeah, all yeah, the symptoms. And prevent patients that have that particular mutation or change from progressing to have the full disease. Because at the time when she had her colon removed, there was so much damage done by the disease itself that even with gene therapy at that point, so much damage was done that it's not reversible. So many changes at the tissue level. And the positive side of this story is that because of the field that I work in, I was able to reach out to the pathologist at Duke University, and I was able to introduce myself, told them my background, that I was at GSK. This is my daughter, Amy, is going to be one of your patients, that you're going to be reading her samples. And, you know, would it be possible for me to meet you and, and discuss her particular case? And he was a relatively new pathologist. He's only been with, with the company at the time for about two years and so I was able to, he was very, actually very enthusiastic. <laughs> he was, I'm sure it's not many times that patients ask to see the pathologist, right? <laughs> so they usually work with their primary care physician, but I was able to sit with him in his office and spend about an hour just going through her tissue samples and reading the slides together. And it was just so impactful for me that he, one, was willing to do that and share that information with me. It also was closure for me, too, because I was able to actually see firsthand the severity of her disease. And I realized that there was no going back 
Yeah, to, that's not easy. Yeah. you know, a healthy state. Yeah. I was like, Mm. wow, she really had a serious, serious disease. And after that meeting, I was able to reach out to the laboratory supervisor at Duke and I asked them to put a hold on her surgical discard. So when you go into a, a medical facility like that and have a procedure done, a good portion of the sample remains in a formalin storage container. And after the diagnosis is made, there's a holding period of several weeks, sometimes a week, sometimes two weeks, and then they discard the sample. And I asked that they put a hold on that and not discard the sample. And I put in a request to have my daughter's sample transferred to my custody. And then I took that sample and transferred it to GSK so that I, I could use it in my research. Amazing. And, Amazing. and so I've done... I've done a lot of work on IHC and insight hybridization. And of course, there was a lot of paperwork and legal stuff to go through for the informed consents and things like that. Exactly. But having a sample like that is so valuable for me as a researcher, because I know the whole patient history, you know, firsthand, and we usually don't get that, right? And I was able to process her sample in the correct way to maximize the value that we can get out of it, to make sure that everything was was suitable. And As a parent, it was so satisfying that I could potentially do something to help my child in the For future sure. and maybe help other parents too who may have children or maybe themselves are patients who could benefit from one of these therapies later on. And, you know, even if my daughter's sample helped answer one question, that's still valuable. It's still in a different place than we would have been without it. And to kind of bring this, you know, full circle back to where we are now, I was able to take some adjacent non-lesional tissue from her colon and compare it to a lesional area that was an active UC lesion. And I ran it on the DSP using the whole transcriptome atlas. And I was able to go through and look at some of the pathways that were perturbed. And I saw pretty significant differences between the adjacent non-lesional versus the lesional. So they're pretty clear. It's only one sample. It's one patient, but at least it's a proof of concept. So Yeah, I looked at it's personalized that. medicine, It really. is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I was able to look at mucosa in the lamina propria and epithelium versus like the, the gut associated lymphoid tissue. So those different spatial compartments, I was able to compare that, that lesional versus the non-active lesional area. And it, it's just... You know, very interesting. I, I'm still going through the data, but one of the challenges is when you're working with a data size like the whole transcriptome is we see a lot of markers that go up or change because of the disease itself, but those changes may not be the root cause of the disease, No, for sure, for sure. right? Yeah, So it's yeah. sometimes it's almost like hunting for a needle in the haystack. Like, how do you find the smoking gun? You see the injury, you see the wound that the, the gun had caused, you see the bleeding, you see the different changes, maybe associated with the gunshot wound, but it doesn't tell you who
and what's already been reported, what we expect to see with this type of disease and what we know about the biology. And then if we have confidence in those, then we can proceed with more confidence to look at what we don't know. I mean, you see the passion and how important this is. I mean, it makes complete sense. The fact that you are able to combine what happens in your personal with your professional life. Are the people in the hospital involved in doing research? Is it something that would be interesting for them to consider for other patients? Because, yeah, you are telling this is just one, but is this something that you can then go back with those results and talk to them? Maybe not at the pathologist level, who is somebody junior, but talking, you know, with the, the university and the hospital structure to see if this is something they can continue working on and work maybe together with GSK, consider if they have testing for new molecules in the future that could be helpful with the kind of data that you're getting. So that makes this like the next step, like you're saying, for other patients to benefit to hopefully your daughter too. But I think this could be the beginning of something bigger. Yeah, and we are doing some of that work here at GSK now. Mm -hmm. So I've gone back to our commercial vendors and I've specifically gone through hundreds of samples in, in tissue banks and I've looked for samples to include in future work. So I've looked at the size of the sample, what the amount of inflammation is, things like that. And I've, I've purchased those samples. I've done some QC on them already with H&E and I ran some IHC markers. So I'm, I'm feeling confident that those will be good to include. And I have uh, 15 UC samples and I have five colons from patients who had CRC, so colorectal cancer. And sometimes they'll, they'll take out some healthy colon as well at the mm -hmm. time of section. And so I, I got some of the, that sample too. And Unfortunately, that's as close as we can get to what we consider normal. Uh, FYI, in the spatial organ atlas from Nanostring, where we have done the WTA on normal tissue, we have the colon. So I can share also that with you. If that's of, um, yeah, that's of interest, you can take a look at the, the type of patients, let's say if it's normal, but still comes from a person, the information from them, I can share that with you if that's helpful. Yeah, yeah, that would be great because it's hard to get, you know, what we consider to be totally normal and healthy. And sometimes we can get that from autopsy samples, but then there's other issues to worry about, like autolysis and changes due to death. And so we always like to try to get surgical samples as much as possible. And for to wrap up the podcast, I don't know if you had followed some of the latest announcements. We have now announced or launched a new product that it, we call the IO, so Immune Oncology Proteome Atlas, or IPA also, and that allows the profiling of 570 proteins in different tissue compartments, just like Geomics allows, but also you could do a co-detection with the WTA, so you really can get the multi-omic information from the tissue. How do you see the biotech and uh, pharma industries make, making use of that? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a very exciting development. It's very impressive. I like the idea of taking those well-characterized antibodies that have been successful for IHC and paraffin samples. I understand that you received a lot of these antibodies from Abcam. Correct. And then transferred is... them over. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a great, you know, kind of lift and shift over to the, the DSP platform. So I'm very excited to, to work on those. We have some projects planned. We'll apply those to see what the readouts look like. And there's been a lot of questions too. This always tends to come up when we're talking about protein versus RNA. There's a desire to compare the both to each other to look at the, you know, how much correlation there is between protein and RNA. 
And I try not to push that too much because there's never going to be a hundred percent correlation. There's an association, but you're measuring two different things. You're measuring a cell's ability to produce a particular protein, but it doesn't actually tell you like a one-to-one correlation. And the way that I look at RNA is to help confirm whether a particular cell has the potential to, you know, do something in the protein space. And so I, I definitely see a lot of value in looking at the protein because that's actually what we can generate some of these biofarms against, these protein targets. We don't develop antibodies against RNA. So that's more in the gene therapy side. So there's a need for both. And I think it's important to understand gene expression as well as protein expression because it can tell you a different story or it can help provide more pieces to that puzzle that I referred to. Exactly. I really like that message that, yeah, we are bringing pieces to a puzzle and proteins are draggable and proteins are the ones doing the job in the cellular functions, whereas RNAs are more working in a signature kind of way. They show signaling pathways or how a signaling pathway is acting at the transcription level on the the cell. So it could be also a readout of what's happening, like you just said. But yeah, we are very excited about this product too. And we can't wait for researchers and companies to start using it and then see what comes out of that. So I I just want to give a bit of advice for anyone getting involved in this type of work because it's it can be overwhelming when you first start to work with the technology because there's a lot of techniques that most histology professionals wouldn't necessarily have like the PCR reactions and the transferring hybe codes to the different wells and the plates and and doing some of the downstream library preps and things like that for the NGS readout. So I would recommend for for teams to start small. Just start with, you know, a few commercial samples, some healthy controls or as close to normal as you can get, and then some disease samples and doing some comparisons there to start out with. I have the end counter as well. And so the end counter readout is a nice way to apply the technology on a smaller scale. So with 84 to 96 markers, either the RNA, the IORNA, the immune cell profiling panel, or the protein panel with some of the modules, start out there and really see what the, the data looks like and what the normal and positive or the housekeepers and background controls look like, what the known biologic controls are, you know, your CD3 positive T cells versus your, your macrophage populations, things like that. From there, then you can expand to larger samples, a larger number of samples with a larger panel getting into the cancer transcriptome or the whole transcriptome assay, or now the 570 proteome. Yeah, that's very good advice. I would also say that you are not alone. Whoever is trying to get started, don't hesitate to reach out to us. So we have a lot of experts, of course, at Nanostring, but there is also a lot of people who have been doing geomics, DSP and profiling for some time. They have published. So reach out to maybe somebody in the campus or some collaborator. I mean, there are people like David who have written the best practices and they spend a lot of time working on that. So yeah, for sure, your advice is very valuable. Start small and then go big but there's something else that you said earlier the hypothesis driven approach so spending time on really designing the experiment in a way that is meaningful so yeah we are trying to automate things and we are working together with partners like Illumina to make the automated process easier faster so that you can spend time on making sure that the data that you get is is valuable and the samples that you are also getting are processed and, and treated in the best possible way I think that that's a good way to 
try to wrap up the the podcast with advice. And is there anything else that you would like to say, yeah, David? Yeah, I, I just wanted to say that I, I really appreciated the advancements with the automation. So when I first started out, it was some of the pre-steps, like the the answer retrieval and the de-waxing steps were, were automated. And now with the RNA, the, the whole process is fully automated on the Bond RX. So I really appreciated that. And around building a sense of community, I would highly recommend that people get involved with the National Society for Civil Technology. I'm really trying to drive uh, the spatial transcriptomics, proteomics technology within that space and do more educational type seminars to get individuals aware of the technology and how they can apply it in their work. And that's a great forum to meet other people and, and develop those best practices and things. Also, I recently joined the editorial board of the Journal of Histotechnology, and we're doing a special issue for next year just on these spatial platforms. So we're trying to get get the, the community together again through that avenue as well. So try to get all these different thoughts and together in one journal. That way we can we can share that with each other and build more of that, again, sense of community, those relationships. What kind of papers are you looking for? Is this more review papers or new methods, original work? So we're, we're taking all comers right now. So it would be great to have a solid review paper to kind of start the discussion off and give a good overview. And it would be great to have some, some current applications of the research too, the technology overview and how it's being applied for different disease models. Really, we don't know what the interest is going to be at this point. This is just recently announced, so I'm looking forward to seeing the varieties that of papers and manuscript that come in. I'm sure you'll get lots of requests. I'm hopeful that I think that there is a community out there very interested in, in getting their views and perspectives out to the world. So we close now with this call for papers, and thank you again for your time and your contribution. It was a lot of fun. And thank you for those of you who are listening. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. If you'd like to know about Nanostring products or contact us, please visit nanostring.com. You may also get in touch with us through LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter, the links to which are in the description. Thank you.